This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 10th, 2019. I'm Sarah Crespi. On this week's show, news writer Kelly Servick joins me to talk about two-person fMRI scans. It's a tight squeeze, but researchers are hoping to use this technique to better understand social interaction. And I talk with Igor Grossman about his science advances paper, which delves into the difference between being rational and being reasonable. Now we have staff news writer Kelly Servick. She's here to talk to us about two-person fMRI. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Sarah. Okay, it's my impression that when you get an fMRI or at least an MRI, the machines are a tight fit. You're in this small, closed-in space, kind of noisy. There's just not that much room in there for one person, let alone two. Yeah, that's totally true. And I think that's for a long time been a a big limitation of trying to study social interactions and get this really amazing sort of spatial resolution of seeing how the brain is activating. That's really the benefit of fMRI is you see brain activity and it's localized. So if you do like, if you think about an EEG. Yeah. Yeah. Electroencephalography has the limitation that you're reading electrical signals through the skull and that's sort of a barrier. So it's it's a lot harder to know where exactly in the brain the signal is coming from. Functional MRI is actually measuring blood oxygenation as sort of a proxy for for neural activity, but it can be a lot more precise. So we're going to talk about this actually happening, two people getting fMRI at the same time, Mm -hmm. and they're not just going out and finding small people to put in there. (laughs) No. So there's two research teams so far that have set up these sort of special two-person fMRI outfits. And so far, a lot of the people scanned have been either good friends or intimate partners. (laughs) For good reason. They are pretty close to each other. I know that the participants would have separate, you know, devices on their heads, but is the space bigger that they get into, you know, the space inside the machine? Yeah, from my understanding, they're still using the same magnet, but they sort of have arranged these people so that they've got these two different little cages around their heads, like you said, and then they lie on their sides facing each other with their the fronts of their legs sort of touching or even entwined. It's pretty much a cuddle. It's cozy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Why wouldn't they just do, you know, a side by side scan? Two scanners in the same room are nearby and they can see each other on video. 
or they can look at the same thing and they can react to the same thing. Yeah, there, people are doing that. And there's this approach called hyperscanning where you basically link to fMRI scanners that are in different places, but you're looking at sort of a synchronized view of the brain activity of two different brains. The argument here is that it's really not the same to see sort of an avatar or even a, you know a video screen with somebody on there. It's not the same as, as sort of being in the flesh confronting another human right in front of your face. But there is debate about whether you really need to see both brains simultaneously versus scanning one of them while someone interacts. For example, with someone standing just outside the scanner, you could still talk to and even maybe even touch that person. You just wouldn't be getting the other brain at the same time. This seems like they're really trying to squeeze as much as they can out of this technology. Both of the, these groups that I talked to, my impression was that they were sort of responding to a limitation in the technology that they had already. They both have lots of interesting questions about how people exchange emotions, how social cues are conveyed, sometimes without words. So I think they are both thinking of this as like kind of pushing their technology, the technology that they had available to the extreme. Mm -hmm. And they ended up with this sort of extreme setup. And this is so up close and personal. I mean, these, you know, they're really intensely close to each other during a study. It does seem like it's kind of going past looking at normal human interaction and kind of expecting people. It's kind of a stretch to expect people to behave normally when they're that close to another person. Yeah. And I think, I mean, any kind of experimental setup is going to be artificial and a little weird for people. Right. So, you know, it's just a question of how how different this is. Some researchers pointed out to me that maybe parent-child interactions mm -hmm. might be a good thing to study in the scanner, either because the parent can physically be in there sort of comforting the child while you're scanning the child's brain of interest, or because you're interested in, for example, children with autism and how they interact with a parent when they make eye contact. That's something that you can really only do if you're face-to-face. -face. Huh. What kinds of interactions have they been able to capture so far? So far, the research has been really basic. One of the teams just published a preprint of sort of a proof of concept where they showed that when people lie next to each other and take turns tapping each other on the lips, um, they could pick up different kinds of sensory experiences that that person was having, feeling the tapping, seeing the tapping in front of their face, hearing instructions about when to tap. So that was just a basic sort of like, this is working, we're, we're reading from the brain kind of set up. The other team is interested first in just figuring out what is the difference between a face-to-face -face interaction in the scanner and these sort of remote interactions where people are in different scanners with a video connection, just like what is the brain doing when you look someone in the eye? This is a slow detector. So these two people are face-to-face -face in a tube, looking at each other, reacting to facial expressions. That's going at one speed, but the detector would have trouble keeping up with micro expressions, right? The speed issue has to do with the actual signal from the brain that they're measuring. This change in blood flow is not happening at the same speed as the sort of firing of neurons, which is what people are really interested in. And that could be a problem if you're arguing that you need to see both brains sort of firing dynamically and interacting with each other and that you need to see information sort of flowing from one brain to the other and going here and then immediately over here you know, that is a limitation of this technology is that it's on the scale of seconds. It's not on the sort of sub-second scale that we have our thoughts and exchange them. There are other tools that can look at brain activity at that speed. Is there a way to pair that kind of measurement with what's going on in fMRI? 
I know that people are using magnetoencephalography, MEG, and also EEG electroencephalography, which just have sort of different different trade-offs about what you can mm-hmm. see in the brain. I think the hope is that eventually you can study people doing a particular task or having a particular interaction with various technologies and then sort of combine those insights. Have you ever been in an MRI scanner? I have partially been. I've never had my brain scanned, so I haven't had the full sort of enclosed experience. Would you get in one? Would you get in one with another person? Oh, uh, yeah, for for science. <laughs> for science, but the big but, S or the little S? <laughs> uh, for, if there were a good enough research question that I felt I was helping and with a particular subset of people in my life. Okay. I, I could be convinced. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kelly. Thank you, Sarah. Kelly Cervic is a staff news writer for science. You can find a link to her story at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Igor Grossman about how we use the terms rational and reasonable. Has the public adopted the precise meanings used by economists and lawyers? This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Now we have Igor Grossman. He and his colleagues published a paper this week in Science Advances on the difference between reasonableness and rationality. I felt like I knew what those words meant before I read the title of your article. So why don't we start with just a brief comparison of what those terms mean technically, rationality and reasonableness. Well, rationality can mean many things. Social scientists and philosophers have debated it for a long time, but the standard definition in economics and uh, some social sciences concerns this preference maximizing agent who tries to think abstractly and comes to the, the right conclusion through logic and often abstract logic. But reasonableness often is used in the legal scholarship. And often it reflects this kind of impartial observer who is sensitive to social norms, who is very pragmatic, reasonable under certain circumstances. It's not like always reasonable to do X, but depending on the situation you're in, Mm -hmm. one thing may be reasonable and another situation, a different thing may be reasonable. As you mentioned, both of these terms kind of fall out of different disciplines. So rationality is the focus of certain disciplines. Reasonableness is important for others. But what you were trying to get at to some extent in this paper was how do everyday people think of these terms? Do they make distinctions and why might those distinctions be important? So how did you go about trying to find out how how people think about these terms? It's a complex question. So yeah. what do people think about uh, rationality? Nobody ever looked at that before in detail. So we thought like if you really want to unpack it, we need to employ different methodologies. We started with looking at narratives in uh, newspapers, in books, in uh, Supreme Court opinions, even in uh, TV sitcoms. So like, okay, so what what is the noun that would follow reasonable and a noun that would follow rational? And we classified this top 100 nouns, let's say, 
that would follow the adjectives reasonable and rational in terms of focus on the person and individual preferences versus focus on social context and interpersonal consideration. What were some of the top nouns that you found associated with these different terms? Rational self-interest is the most common one that is uniquely rational. You would not say reasonable self-interest. I mean, you could say that, but it doesn't occur as often. Mm -hmm. In contrast to that, the reasonable accommodation is a very common one. You would be able to say rational accommodation, but you already feel like this is not something that people Mm -hmm. would tend to do. And yeah, so it appears across multiple languages in English and Portuguese, Spanish, even in Russian and in Urdu, you see these differences where rational is more likely to be linked with this kind of preference maximizing individual focused agent and reasonable is more linked to this kind of interpersonal or even intertemporal accommodations Mm. where you think about the context more. You also used the indefinite versus the definite article as part of your process here. Why would it make sense to look at whether you say the or a before um, one of these terms? Right. So this is an interesting feature of the English language (laughs) where uh, you can look at different articles and uh, you can look at phrases. So for instance, a reasonable thing to do, a reasonable decision or a rational decision, a rational thing to do. You can say a reasonable thing to do, or you can say the reasonable thing to do. And that sounds much much more definite if you say the reasonable thing to do. It seems like there's one way to solve this problem. It turns out that if you compare those, people are more likely to say the rational thing to do, but a reasonable thing to do, suggesting that a reasonable is used much more holistically as a rationalist having some kind of a general formal rule that is driving why people would prefer one particular course of action. So those parts of your study looked at what's already happened out in the world, like how these terms are used. But you also did some experimental interventions where you looked at different kinds of performance of rationality or reasonableness. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the key thing for us was to show that not only are there different narratives in language, but also that there are implications for performance and economic games. In the last 30 or something years, researchers in economics and in psychology have shown that people often act irrationally. They did that by asking people to play games such as a dictator game. And so in this game, you are given a sum of money and you say, okay, so it's you and somebody else. You don't know who this other person is. And you are welcome to share whatever you want to share with this other person. You don't have to. So how much will you share? And so economists would say you don't have to share anything because, you know, you don't have a, you, there, there are no consequences for you. You never met this person. You will never see this person. Mm-hmm. There are no costs. And you're just given this lot of money, so you should keep it. But people tend to share some. So it's like, aha, so people are irrational. They do this silly thing. They share with somebody, <laughs> even though they could just keep it for themselves. Yeah. And we're thinking, is it because people don't get it? Is this is that they don't understand what rationality means? Maybe they have a sort of, we use the term rational to mean something entirely different than what economists mean. Or is it that they follow some other principles? So we ask people to play this dictator game as well as many other sort of economic games. And we ask people, what would the rational person do? What would the reasonable person do? What would you do if you're rational, reasonable? Or like think about last time you were rational. Think about last time you were reasonable. Now play this game. And turns out like whenever we do this, people are much more likely 
to take more money when they're thinking about this rational standard, right. but give up to half when they're thinking about this reasonable standard. So they're more likely to cooperate when they're thinking of reasonableness, follow some kind of social norms, and more likely to be economically self-serving or focusing on their preferences when they think about rationality, suggesting that they understand what this concept is about. Right. So you are actually asking a question about the games, about these kinds of experiments that economists are doing and saying maybe not everyone is irrational. Maybe they just act more reasonably than rationally in these games. Well, we did it both ways. Yeah. We were both asking about what would be the expectation or what would you do if you were rational, reasonable, looked at the behavioral consequence of that, but also said, look, okay, this, the person does this versus that. He is either cooperating or he is, uh, is self-serving. How rational versus reasonable is that? The reason why we wanted to do this is just to, to see what the consequences of these concepts are for economic behavior mm -hmm. and whether people understand the standard of rationality, but potentially do not use it all the time due to preference for this reasonableness standard. Mm -hmm. Why do you think this is an important question to answer? We often have these grand theories about uh, what it means to make a sound decision or what is a good judgment. But, you know, there is reality and there is also what people actually think about this, uh, the general public. And uh, just serving that and comparing it against some kind of standard expert definitions is a very important thing because then you can actually evaluate to what extent that people off in their beliefs. Right. But the other thing that is also very important here is that People often think that, look, individuals are not acting rationally, so there's nothing you can do to teach them. So you have to really socially engineer the environment through so-called nudges, for instance. Mm -hmm. And this idea that people actually can understand what rationality means, they just don't use it all the time, is that potentially this nudge-oriented strategy is a bit misguided. The people often choose to be irrational when it violates their preferred standard of reasonableness, mm -hmm. which is kind of more socially conscious. So the idea would be potentially instead of just using nudges to supplement them, I'm not saying that they shouldn't be used, but to supplement them, one could also remind people of these different standards in different situations. So if you want people to act rationally, you should remind them of yeah. the standard of rationality, which they probably just don't think of all the time. Mm -hmm. I kind of know what nudging is, but can you give an, a specific example of how nudging has been used in the past and how presenting somebody with a rational versus reasonable you know, framework to deal with a question might aid or, or supersede nudging? So nudges normally refer to simple reminders or structuring of the situation. For instance, uh, a good example that some claim is fairly effective. Imagine that the default strategy on your driving license for organ donation is not a no, mm -hmm. but yes. If it, the default is yes, people are more likely to opt in mm -hmm. than if the default is no, which is originally was the case. Or imagine the thermostat in your house is uh, set up in such a way that you can compare your ratings to the ratings of the other people in your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. so, so like simple things that do not really explain what you should be doing and why you should be doing things, but rather just uh, activate certain concepts, either be a social comparison in case of this thermostat or just a lazy preference in mm. case of uh, organ donation. I've run into both of those things and I'm feeling very nudged. 
<laughs> right. And it's a very popular policy. And I do think it works, but it kind of robs people of some kind of free will. There's a big debate about that, but also it suggests that people, their motivations don't matter. I think that's misguided because people do think about and care about making good decisions. And so the idea here is that uh, potentially this idea of understanding what rational and reasonable standards are about can give them this agency back, give them this kind of motivation back and say like, okay, look, in this situation, it's really beneficial to be rational because then you can have this and that benefit. Mm -hmm. So go ahead and be rational. And if people understand that rational means focusing on their preferences, then they would potentially be able to do exactly what economists would suggest they should do. Mm -hmm. It's just that sometimes this is not the first thing that comes to their mind. All right. Thank you so much, Igor. Yeah, you're welcome. Igor Grossman is the director of the Wisdom and Culture Lab at the University of Waterloo. You can find a link to his science advances paper at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. There you'll find links to the news and research discussed in the episode. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, and many other places. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. Special thanks to Megan Cantwell and Joel Goldberg. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.